My name is Natalie Yervlifker. I'm an audio engineer at WAMU in Washington, D.C. I work with Diane and the team of producers on each episode of this podcast. I love getting that sneak peek into Diane's engaging, thoughtful conversations with guests, asking the pointed questions as only she can. And it's support from listeners that keeps those questions coming. If you'd like to show your appreciation for On My Mind, make a donation today at dianereem.org slash donate. And thanks. Hi, it's Diane. On my mind, what we know about Russia's attempts to interfere in the 2020 election through the spread of disinformation online or false media reports that tap into deep divisions in America, the Russians are at it again. But they're not the only ones. While both U.S. intelligence and the American public have a better understanding of the tactics stopping these efforts coming from domestic sources as well is still proving a challenge. Like four years ago, the president continues to deny it's happening or that Russia's actions are a threat to U.S. democracy. I asked Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter at the Washington Post, to explain what we know. Shane Harris, we're less than two months away from the presidential election. What do we know about ways in which Russia may be trying to interfere? Well, I think we actually know a good amount right now. And I would kind of put it into two separate buckets. Uh, One being what I would call sort of trying to influence opinion in the social media space. And the second, a little bit more targeted and I think more troubling. Um, On the first, we see Russia doing some of the same things that it did in 2016, creating bots or what we might call trolls that operate on social media, that post things that might be incendiary or divisive or in favor of one candidate and against another. And then we've also seen them taking stories that really did occur, events that did occur, and then amplifying them to essentially make a much bigger deal about them. So there was a very notable case, for instance, uh, during the uh, some of the protests in Portland, uh, which of course many of which you know turned quite violent and chaotic in some instances, there was video captured of a protester burning a Bible. Well, we know from reporting by the New York Times and the work of some researchers that that video got picked up in Russian media and then shared in social media in the U.S. So in that case where this real event did occur, it got kind of amplified and turned from a story of an individual protester burning a Bible into a story that protesters, plural, were burning lots of Bibles. And this kind of gets picked up and amplified and shared in various social media circles. You know, I have family members who saw it and were asking questions about it. Um, It kind of starts to fulfill a narrative that some people might have that these protesters are out of control and, you know, they hate America and they hate God and whatever. So the Russians kind of play a bit of an amplification role in that, which is also not unusual. We saw instances of that in 2016. In this kind of second bucket of more targeted information, 
What we know from the director of national intelligence's office, where they do all the election security monitoring, and from reporting that we've done at the Post and elsewhere, there is a, uh, a Ukrainian lawmaker friendly to the Kremlin, who himself has ties to the KGB, who has been circulating misinformation about Joe Biden and allegations about Joe Biden's son and corruption in Ukraine. This will all sound familiar because, of course, this was the subject area that got Donald Trump in trouble and ultimately impeached and has been trying to get that information out in the public. And in one case, we believe even filtering it over to a U.S. senator to try and get him to gin up an investigation into the Bidens, which, of course, was something that Donald Trump wanted. So they're more, much more precise, kind of targeted disinformation, misinformation, and that has been flagged by the director of national intelligence as Russia's attempt to interfere in the election. What about emails, hacking of emails, releasing them? Is there evidence of that? We have no evidence of that yet, which I think is reassuring or should be. Uh, I think most experts I've talked to and people in the intelligence community feel that in 2016, those the theft and the leaking to WikiLeaks of DNC emails and Clinton campaign emails was probably the most serious and aggressive operation they saw by Russia that maybe had the most potential to interfere in the election, maybe even change people's minds. We have not seen that yet. Uh, important to remember, though, Organizations often, when they are hacked, may not know they've been hacked until the information has been disclosed. So, you know, we only know what we know. We don't know what we don't. But so far, we have not seen the Russians running that play that they had in 2016. What about this website called Ruptly, R-U-P-T-L-Y, which is owned by the Russian-backed media network RT. What are they doing? What we've seen from this site, it kind of goes to the earlier example that I was discussing about how a story will get picked up and amplified. We see sites like Ruptly and also, I mean, another I would point to is a site called Sputnik that has been linked to, 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 to Russia and the Russian government links as sometimes kind of like little seed beds where stories will start and then get amplified and picked up by a larger network, maybe RT, and then hopefully into possibly into the into the Western media stream. So when we think about kind of the way that these stories develop, sometimes they'll start on smaller sites like that and then kind of get attraction enough eyeballs are seeing it online and then grow into something that looks more like a legitimate story because it might have been reported now by a number of different outlets. So we kind of kind of see a like a little bit of a of a factory progression, maybe even through sites like that. So how believable are these kinds of sites? How realistic do they look? I think, I mean, if you go to them, I mean, they will often look like real websites, right? They have a tabloid quality, I think, a lot of times. Um, you know, a more discerning reader will recognize, you know, incendiary or tendentious headlines, uh, things that we might say look like clickbait. Um, you know, but I think if you are just sort of a user on the internet and you're seeing a story go through your stream and you're not necessarily looking at where it came from, but maybe you're just looking at how many times it's been shared, 
you know, the, the authenticity factor kind of changes a little bit. You're seeing friends of yours share the story that might make you more likely to, to believe it. And frankly, there are American websites that you go to that, you know, have screaming headlines and look sort of misleading too, right? The Russian websites in general that we've seen that are trafficking in, you know, misinformation and outright disinformation, they look more sophisticated. They, they have, a, have a more kind of Western sort of feel. Um, if you look at, by contrast, Iranian websites, for instance, that have been put up in recent years to try and mirror sites uh, supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, they have obvious grammatical errors. They don't look like what we think of websites looking like here. The Russians have gotten better at making ones that I think just have a uh, a more sophisticated look or sophisticated enough. So, Shane, President Trump has talked a great deal lately about the hazards of mail-in voting. Then the other day he suggested to people that they actually vote twice you know, go ahead and vote by mail and then show up at your polling place. We recently learned of Russia's efforts to undermine confidence in mail-in voting. First of all, what do we know? Second of all, who started this, President Trump or Russia? Second one's a great question. To, to the first one, so what we know so far comes largely from a bulletin that was put together recently by the Homeland Security Department, and they have a role in election security as well. Uh, and what this said was that Russian media, and they didn't identify them precisely, but were, were spreading stories trying to um, lend credence to the idea that mail-in voting is not secure and that it's rife with fraud. Now, of course, this is an idea that Donald Trump has been talking about for, for quite some time, uh, which then leads to the question of, is Donald Trump amplifying what he's reading in Russian sources or are Russian sources amplifying what Donald Trump is already saying? And regardless of kind of who started it, and I don't know that we know exactly who may have, there is a feedback loop here that now appears to be generated. And if you read that Homeland Security Bulletin, which was only put together a few days ago, and you kind of read between the lines, they're not saying the Russians are amplifying Donald Trump, but they are saying the Russians are trying to amplify claims and allegations and suspicions that are now being discussed in the United States. And of course, you know, the, the major spokesperson for that has been the president. It, it really, to me, underscores, you know, the luck that the Russians must feel in some of these operations where, you know, they can expend all of this time and energy perhaps trying to get an idea or, or a, a false claim perpetuated online. But the man with the biggest microphone on the planet is kind of doing their work for them in some cases. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's, if people are believing right now in America that mail-in voting is not safe, my suspicion is that's because either they've heard it from the president or he has kind of stoked an underlying concern that they had and not because they read, you know, an article on RT or Sputnik. Are U.S. investigative agencies looking into this stuff that the Russians are doing and what are they finding? Well, what we know right now is that 
Intelligence agencies and the Homeland Security Department certainly are monitoring it insofar as they can go online the way you and I can and look at these stories and try to figure out what they add up to. Now, I'm not aware that the FBI is precisely investigating any particular actions by Russia. Um, they are certainly always on the lookout for that. And the U.S. intelligence community, as just as a matter of course, is always looking into inf information campaigns by the Russians, particularly more now in 2016 than they were before. The director of national intelligence's office has been criticized by Democratic lawmakers in particular for not sharing enough of what it is that they are learning. Democratic lawmakers have said, look, you've put out some statements they're kind of broad and they're general. There's a lot more detail to that story that we are getting in a classified setting. So what I think that tells you is that in the intelligence community, they are investigating this. They are looking more closely into it. And I think they're coming up with more details. When I talk to sources, you know, what they will say is that, yes, there is more that we have not revealed but they say it's more that there are just additional details that we don't want to talk about because it might give away how we're acquiring that information. You know, maybe they're getting it from a human source in Russia, or maybe they have some kind of special electronic access. But what they have said to me is that it, it's not like the Russians are up to something on a, on a totally different track that we're not aware of, that kind of what we see in terms of the social media manipulation, the attempts to launder this information, you know, through members of Congress or people close to Donald Trump about the Bidens, that that does sort of capture the universe of what's happening. Now, again, we only know what we know, but so far it does seem like we're sort of at a 30,000 foot level. Members of Congress may have a little bit more detail but it does feel like we've got a sense of what the Russians are up to. And the intelligence community is, I think, taking it quite seriously. But is there any indication that the intelligence community is sharing this information with certain Republicans, but not sharing it with Democrats? In other words, has even the sharing of intelligence information become political? Well, I think the bigger concern now is more that they're not sharing enough with either side. And so the Democrats feel that it's it's not so much that Republicans are getting a special view into this that they're not, but that the intelligence agencies and the leadership in general have been withholding. Um, notably, uh, the director of national intelligence has said in recent days that he's not going to be giving any uh, in-person briefings anymore to members of Congress about election threats. And the, the stated concern for this is that information can leak and that things have come out from classified briefings in the press that the DNI doesn't want out. Now, it's a little strange that they're doing this uh, and offering what they see are going to be written briefings, since presumably written material can leak even easier than verbal material. That has led, I think, to a lot of concern, justifiably so, particularly among Democrats, that what the DNI is really doing here is is at least in part perhaps, holding back because if the truth continues to come out that Russia is intervening in the election, that Russia is trying to denigrate Joe Biden as the DNI's office has said publicly, that that's going to enrage the president. You know, everyone in the intelligence community understands that the fastest way to set him off is to talk about Russia and election interference because for the president, that goes back to 2016 and raises concerns for him that his victory was not legitimate, that there is some kind of asterisk by his win, that he only won because Russia intervened. Now, there's no evidence of that, but in the president's mind, 
that's what the Russia hoax is really all about. So people just kind of try to avoid that as a subject. And I think they're avoiding talking about it to Congress, partly for that reason as well. So to whom is the DNI responsible? To the American people, to the Congress, or simply to the president? I mean, this is outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. The DNI reports directly to the president. So that's his boss. But to your point about who he's accountable to, yes, to Congress and yes, ultimately to the public. And what, what's been the real concern, I think, for lawmakers in particular here is that they can't really exercise their oversight authority over the intelligence agencies, but also over election security, which is you know even more important, arguably, as of an oversight mission, if the DNI is not going to play ball with them, if there are things that that office knows that it's not going to reveal, what's the Congress supposed to do? Subpoena people? I mean, make it a court fight? Generally, you know, for, 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 for years, the oversight process of the intelligence agencies has depended on some element of good faith between the Congress and the executive. And, and, you know, of course, many people in Congress don't expect that the executive is always telling you everything. But, you know, intelligence community professionals I've talked to about this say, you know, in general, the intelligence agencies welcome that level of oversight, right? If you can kind of bring Congress in and show them what you're doing, and even in some cases kind of get their their blessing or their acquiescence to it, it helps provide more legitimacy and even some more political support for that. So a lot of, you know, career intelligence people I've talked to who are not partisans say this is not a smart idea because A, it deprives obviously the American public of this information, but it doesn't put the intelligence agencies in a strong footing either. It makes them very defensive and it makes it look like they're hiding something, uh, which is not good. It makes them look as though they're protecting themselves from the wrath of the president rather than protecting the American people from what the Russians are actually doing. I think that's right. That's right. And and, and and it leaves open the allegation, too, that what they're really trying to do is politically help the president. Now, I don't think that that's the case for career intelligence uh, people who are trying to do a job. But we should note that the director of national intelligence, uh, a former congressman, Reckliff from Texas, was a vocal supporter of the president during the impeachment hearings. Uh, he was leading the charge of calling these illegitimate hearings, saying there's nothing to them. He is a political ally of the president, and we can't you know, disregard that fact that there is a, you know, a, a political ally in this position with the ability to withhold information from Congress. So is there any indication that the director of the DNI has instructed his employees to hold tight to that information. Is there any indication of that? Oh, yes. I mean, he has said publicly that they're going to discontinue these briefings. Um, There's a career official who's beneath the DNI, who's subordinate to him, named uh, William Evanina, who's a career person who is the one in charge of the election security issue and gives those briefings. But now it's his boss, John Ratcliffe, that says, we're not going to do this anymore. So, yeah, I mean, he's been pretty explicit about it. Now, the stated concerns about this are, you know, leaking the security of the information. And it's true. Information has leaked. Information does leak. But, you know, it's not as though career intelligence officials don't know how to give briefings in such a way that they assume some of it's going to leak and that they're careful about how they do it. So I think that excuse for a lot of people I've talked to rings pretty hollow. 
more of my conversation with Shane Harris when we come back. My name's Nick Hartigan. I listened to The Diane Reem Show for many decades, and now my son is listening with me to Diane Reem on my mind. Makes me think of uh, when I listen to The Diane Reem Show with my mom. It takes a lot of work to produce a podcast like On My Mind. It gets made because of the members of WAMU. So if you love it, then you can support it. <laughs> you can make sure it keeps getting made and you keep hearing Diane on the air. Make a donation at WAMU.org. Here's the rest of my conversation with Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter at the Washington Post. Shane, let's talk about the attempts to denigrate Mr. Biden's health and the kind of information or disinformation that's been coming out about him. So we know that President Trump sort of coined this nickname, you know, Sleepy Joe, some time ago during the primaries. Uh, And this was, you know, I think both reflecting some anxiety that did exist among voters, but also kind of fanning the flames of this idea that the vice president was too old to run. Maybe he's lost a step. Uh, You know, notably, a lot of these, uh, I would say, concerns were being pushed by the president before the former vice president actually came out and said that he's lifelong uh, dealt with a stutter, which actually helps explain sometimes maybe the way that his speech seems kind of clipped and truncated. And that was interesting that that was offering some, you know, maybe antidote to that. But, you know, look, the vice president would be the oldest person ever serving if he were elected. And so the president's played on that, obviously. Now, he kind of backed away from that for a while and has sort of, you know, tried to favor other labels like, well, Joe Biden is sort of a Trojan horse of the left and this kind of thing. But no, it was very interesting to me. um, Last week, we saw the president's White House social media director, Dan Scavino, uh, tweet out a video that purported to be from an interview that Joe Biden was giving with a local television news station a few years back. And the correspondent is on one side of the screen And she says, okay, now it's time for our interview. And they cut to Joe Biden on the other side of the screen, and he appears to be sleeping. And the correspondent is saying, wake up, wake up, come on, you're on air, we're live on TV. Well, the White House social media director puts this out as if to say, look, we found evidence of Joe Biden asleep during a television interview. Well, one of the people who was one of the co-anchors during that broadcast quickly came out and said, this video isn't real. The way that I know that is because I was here for this interview. First of all, it wasn't with Joe Biden. It was with Harry Belafonte, (laughs) who is edited out of the video and replaced with a clip of Joe Biden that appears to be anyway, not of him sleeping, but just of kind of a loop where his eyes are closed to make it look like he is sleeping. So, you know, this is, I mean, I pointed this as an example of, you know, that is an altered video, right? That is, that is disinformation. That is showing something that simply did not happen, at least not in the, in the way that it's being portrayed in this instance. And that's being pushed by the White House social media director. This stuff is all out in the open now. And when he's called on it, essentially says, you know, what's wrong? Can't you take a joke? Well, <laughs> this isn't a joking matter. This is a presidential campaign. Now, the White House 
is not the only one to say this is a joke. What about Congressman Steve Scalise and what he's done to alter segments of video about Joe Biden? Is this, again, copying Russia or giving something to Russia to copy? You know, I think that in some sense, it is like, you know, he is copying Russia's playbook insofar as Congressman Scalise has also been pushing out these doctored videos or speeches or statements by the vice president in which he is set, accused of saying things that he didn't actually say. What's notable to me, two things about that. One is that the congressman may actually be violating House rules that have been set up to prevent this kind of use of social media to spread things that just simply aren't true or have been altered. But if you go back a year or so, or even a year and a half or so ago, when intelligence and security officials were starting to get ready, you know, warning more about what we were going to face in the 2020 election, including in a, in a big set of hearings that were had more than a year ago about global threats that we face, this annual hearing where intelligence officials come before Congress and the people and give a big kind of tour of the world of what they're worried about. This issue of deep fakes and of altered video and, you know, deliberate editing of statements was something that officials were flagging then and have been flagging all along as what they were afraid Russia was going to do or what a foreign country was going to do. Now what we're facing is, you know, is the White House is doing it. Republican members of Congress are doing it. You know, it's sort of it's, the call is coming from inside the House, you know, to borrow from the, the horror movie cliche. I don't know if that's something that intelligence officials really reckoned with. I think there was more of a fear that Russia might drop something into the media stream and others would amplify it. This stuff is originating from U.S. officials, or at least insofar as they are pushing it out on their own, where they, where it may be appearing originally is an open question. This is a real conundrum, right? Because, I mean, on the one hand, we understand that in political campaigns, people sometimes say exaggerated or even outrageous things, that that becomes kind of part of the feature of a campaign. But this seems, strikes me as, as quite different insofar as you're talking about pushing out video and words attributed to someone, those things stick. They look real. They are engineered to look real, not as an opinion that the congressman or the White House is expressing, but look, here is actual video or an actual statement that you should believe. That's different than spin. And give me an example of the videos that Steve Scalise has pushed. So let me pull one up here as I'm talking to you, Diane, one second. Sure, good. He's since taken this down, but uh, Congressman Scalise tweeted a video in which there are these scenes of, you know, of chaos and destruction from various protests, and it includes a clip of a question and a response by Vice President Biden that's edited in a way that takes out context and words that he said to make it appear as though Joe Biden is in favor of pulling funding from police. So he's asked a question in this video, do we agree that we can redirect some of the funding for the police? And Biden responds, yes, absolutely. But if you look at the original published version of the video, it shows that the questioner did not say the words for police at the end of the question. And that Biden's response is not really what he said. And of course, Joe Biden has come out publicly and said he doesn't support defunding the police. So this is taking, you know, both the interviewer and the interviewee and, and selectively editing their words into a conversation that just didn't happen. 
at least not and didn't happen the way that it's being portrayed. Now, whether the congressman knew that or not, and I think he said essentially that he didn't really know that, he kind of pushed it out there, but the damage is done. And, you know, and voters will see that, particularly if they're, I think, if they're supporters or constituents of the congressman and see, oh, yeah, I've heard that Joe Biden wants to defund the police. And that message now sticks. Uh, and again, we're used to kind of, I think, surrogates making those arguments or certainly kind of spin even coming from elected officials. But here is somebody in a position of authority pushing out information that has been manipulated. So to what extent does the authority of the DNI get into actions on the part of members of Congress, or should they? Well, they don't really do have any power to stop them from saying what they want to say, and the DNI doesn't certainly can't investigate members of Congress. But what they have done in this, this very interesting statement that came out a month or so ago is they actually did point to, in the list of things that Russia was doing, and it was a short list, they pointed to this disinformation being peddled by this lawmaker in Ukraine that I mentioned, the one who is trying to sort of gin up an investigation into Joe Biden. One of the things that he's actually done has been to release, sounds familiar, uh, a selectively edited audio tapes of conversations that Joe Biden had with a Ukrainian official when he was serving in office talking about removing a prosecutor in Ukraine who was widely viewed as corrupt. And of course, this is this, this is what the Trump supporters have taken as the story of, well, this is Joe Biden trying to get rid of a prosecutor who was investigating his son. So, you know, these tapes didn't really reveal anything new. They did appear to be selectively edited. And what the DNI did was it called out the, the peddling of this material by this individual lawmaker. And it didn't say, and he's trying to give it to congressional staff, which we believe he is from our own reporting. But if you kind of read between the lines a little bit, I think that that was the DNI saying to Congress, like, we all know who this man has been talking to, and we all know that he is trying to launder this information through Republican lawmakers and get them to talk about it or to start investigations of it. Senator Ron Johnson has actually been the most notable recipient of this, although he has kind of claimed that he's not really getting information from this lawmaker. It's a bit of a convoluted explanation on his part. But the point is the DNI is in a position where they can at least kind of call these things out. The problem has been, I think, in the eyes of a lot of Democratic lawmakers and experts, and I think this is a fair criticism, is that when the DNI talks about Russia, it also talks about two other countries, China and Iran. And in the minds of a lot of people, this creates kind of this sense that there's some sort of equivalence or a continuity among what all of these countries are doing. And that's just not the case. What Russia is doing is much more aggressive. It's targeted at one candidate, Joe Biden. It's covert in many cases. It, it, it's clandestine in others. Um, it's simply not the same category of what China is doing or what Iran is doing. What about Facebook and Twitter? Is Russia using those the same way they did in 2016? Yeah, broadly speaking, they are. I mean, we see still accounts popping up posing as quote unquote real users or legitimate users that are being linked back to Russia and to places in Russia known to manufacture these fake accounts or bots. Um, interestingly, in some cases, 
some of these accounts appear to be not so much automated, but have real people behind them and trying to cultivate a following to have more authenticity. So that's happening on Twitter. And certainly on Facebook, we're seeing, you know, placement of ads, I mean, sharing of information, sharing of misleading stories that sort of fits into the categories that we saw in 2016. The companies, I think, are trying more aggressively to get a handle on that. I think Twitter has probably been doing a, a more aggressive job of that than Facebook. Uh, Twitter is actually, I think, has, has limited political advertising entirely uh, and is much more willing to flag accounts now that have false or misleading information, including tweets by the president. He's been, you know, red flagged a number of times. Facebook has now said they're going to ban political advertising in the week before the election, which some people, experts will say, okay, that's that's a step maybe in the right direction. But overall, Facebook has taken a more hands-off approach to this, I think, than Twitter, which is not to say that Twitter has, you know, really engaged and gotten very aggressive about policing content on its site either. For both of these companies, they're very worried about the perception that they are taking a side in a political debate because ultimately they don't want to alienate their users and make it seem like they have a dog in the fight. And then I think, you know, some of them also have principled concerns about freedom of speech and don't want to be seen as, you know, suppressing that on their platforms, even though, you know, we should be clear, these are private communications platforms. The First Amendment doesn't apply to them. But are they both better equipped to deal with the kinds of things that Russia wants to push? I think they're better equipped now than they were in 2016. They have more people working on the problem. They have better algorithms. Their technology can be tuned to filter some of this stuff out. But, you know, honestly, Diane, if foreign governments want to flood the information space with misleading content, it can happen fairly easily. And I think that you know, what we have to kind of come to grips with as a society is that these companies are probably never going to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. And that what's what's really called for here is for citizens to become more educated and more discerning about what they're seeing, right? I mean, whether that's through news literacy education programs for children in grade school, whether it's public service announcements, I don't know. But I think that if we're hoping for Twitter and Facebook to help us understand what's legitimate information and what's not, we're going to be waiting a very long time for that assistance to come. I find myself wondering how many people are getting their news and information from Facebook and Twitter versus how many are getting it from legitimate sources like the Washington Post, like the New York Times. How can we know? Well, we can measure these things, you know, through surveys. You know, we track what comes to our website based on referrals from social media sites. Somebody clicks on a link in their Facebook feed or clicks on a tweet versus lands on our page on their own or finds us through a Google News search, which increasingly happens. So, you know, I think what's what the evidence seems to show is that a sizable number of people are, in fact, just staying on Facebook or on Twitter to see what's there and maybe aren't clicking through to go to those individual sites or perhaps aren't starting their day simply by going to, you know, the New York Times website or to NPR's website or to the Washington Post's website. And this information gets shared within their social groups. I mean, I think it's somewhat anecdotal at this point, but, you know, talking to members of my own family, I mean, I've had conversations where someone will see a story that is so, to me, obviously not true or, or misleading. And I'll say, well, where did you get that? And they'll say, well, I saw it on Facebook. 
And, you know, there's a kind of a moment of education there where you're like, well, hold on a second. This thing that you're seeing, you're associating Facebook with a publisher and making an assumption that Facebook has verified the information that they're putting on their website. And, you know, you can forgive people maybe who didn't grow up with this stuff the way maybe younger people did for, you know, for making that mistake. But at some point, don't we all kind of understand now that social media is distinct from news organizations? And for me as a journalist, it's really, it's become quite frustrating because I don't have a great answer for how to combat that because people see something, they read it, they want to believe it, it reflects back to them a set of beliefs they already have. It's very hard to break through that just by saying, well, you know, you saw it on Facebook, therefore don't trust it. I mean, I post my own stories to Facebook, you know, I mean, I want people to believe those. So we've been talking thus far about what's happening before the election. Let's talk about what could happen in terms of Russian interference after the election if there is a delay in results. What are your concerns? My big concerns are that Russia, or for that matter, you know, the president, will rush to judgment as the returns are coming in and and, and try to preemptively declare perhaps a a victory. I mean, one scenario that's being discussed by a lot of analysts now is that given that the polls indicate that Democrats seem to be overwhelmingly in favor of voting by mail, Democratic voters, that what you might see is as the election night is unfolding, the in-person votes being counted and it looks like there's a lead for Donald Trump, but as the absentee ballots are voted in the days after the vote, actually it shifts more to Biden. So there's a possibility of that happening. It's those two or three days of counting that are these extremely vulnerable times when you know the president might want to claim a victory or might come out and say, well, I have reports that uh, ballots are being counted late or ballots are being stolen or suddenly ballots are showing up where there shouldn't be any. You can imagine the sort of opportunity for misleading information, disinformation, or frankly, you know, well-intentioned reporting that just turns out to be wrong. I mean, think back to 2000 when the networks were flipping back and forth over calling Florida for Al Gore or George W. Bush. In an environment like that, where information is flying around the internet and people are tuning into Twitter or looking at websites trying to, to figure out what is the ground truth, that is just a, a huge opportunity for mischief that, that, that you could imagine the Russian government inserting itself into. And of course, you talk about the Russian government, but we are still hearing about Attorney General Barr making references to those 185,000 missing votes or over votes or illegal votes, and then that story being totally discounted. That's right. And that's something else that is really worth underscoring in this conversation, because the attorney general, any attorney general is supposed to operate, you know, in an apolitical fashion to ensure that the laws are enforced. And what we've actually seen with Bill Barr is that he's picked up and and, and really tried to support this, this idea that President Trump pushes, that there is something inherently flawed about mail-in balloting or that fraud is rampant. And it's just, it just simply is not true. And even when he makes these claims and they're proven not to be true. You know, his aides will try to backtrack for him and say, oh, well, he was given maybe, you know, not complete information. Bill Barr knows that there's no rampant voter fraud in the United States. And if there was, he'd be prosecuting it. So this this also becomes a real problem if you have not just the president, who people expect sometimes to kind of exaggerate and exercise in hyperbole and not just, you know, Russian streams of disinformation, but 
What if the Attorney General of the United States comes out and says, you know, I believe we have evidence that absentee ballots were miscast. We're investigating potential overcounts for Joe Biden and, you know, these four or five states. And you could just imagine, I mean, you know, ways in which people in positions of authority could start to make people believe that a conclusion has been reached when it hasn't. And given the hair trigger that we're all on right now, I don't think it's that unrealistic to think that you could see protests sparked on either side about that. And, and I think that's a, that's that genuinely worries me that we are at a point now where people are going to start, you know, taking it to the streets to settle these disputes that they have with each other and, and not leaving it at the ballot box. What could or should the U.S. government be doing right now to protect the vote in November and ensure that it's trustworthy? Well, the number one thing they should be doing is ensuring that the Postal Service obviously has the capacity that it needs to deliver the ballots. I think that there's, you know, there are certainly instances where we've seen where the Postal Service has uh, been, you know, alerting states saying, look, you know, make sure people know, get those ballots in early. There may be a crush of them coming. I mean, you've heard mail carrier unions come out and say, look, we can handle the volume of the pieces of mail that are going to come in. We just want to make sure is that we try and, you know, distribute that out along the timeline as much as possible so that we don't have 100 million pieces of mail just dropped in on one or two days. But they can deliver it. The question is, how quick will it get there? The, the other thing that, you know, that needs to happen, and this is happening to their credit, is Homeland Security, the Department of Homeland Security, does talk to state and local governments to ensure that their voter rolls and their electronic voting systems have not been tampered with that they know the kinds of things that foreign governments are trying to do to interfere with elections. And I think that that kind of public information is helpful. And it would be good, too, I think, for us in in the press to be listening to these conversations and these warnings that are happening and, and, and knowing that on election night, we just need to be very patient and not rush to conclude that one candidate won or lost. And this is going to be really difficult because it's in the nature of us as journalists to want to report the information quickly, but we've got to listen to these officials from the intelligence office, from the postal service saying, look, this is just going to take longer. And we're talking about days, not one day. As a journalist, do you have faith that Postmaster General DeJoy is going to do everything he can to make sure those ballots get in on time. I think I have faith that the pressure has been placed on him, (laughs) that he now is going to have to do everything he can to make sure that they get in on time. And, And he is under investigation now, we understand, for campaign contributions that he solicited when he was in private industry. So this is presuming that Postmaster General DeJoy is still the Postmaster General in two months. You can't assume anything. You can't assume anything right now. Exactly. But, you know, there's been so much scrutiny applied to this now. And to be fair, you know, some of the things like um, removal of mailboxes or sorting machines, these are some things that were in the works before he became Postmaster General. But in the current context, of course, there has to be heightened scrutiny applied to anything involving this postal service mechanism that is now going to effectively be the ballot box for a majority of Americans. So I think that he knows he's under a microscope and probably will certainly not take any efforts to try and impede the timely delivery of those ballots. It's also up to state secretaries of state 
who are in charge of elections in the various states and, and the territories as well, to ensure that they have kind of prepared themselves for this deluge that's going to come in. You know, in Pennsylvania, it's very interesting. We've seen the legislature there try to push a change in the law that would allow them to at least start examining the ballots three days ahead of the election day when they're only counting, just to make sure there are no errors. So if there are, they can get back in touch with the voter and ask them to do what's called curing the ballot so that they can get it counted and not have to delay that. Uh, And some states can count earlier than others. But for those places where they can only start looking at the ballots when they come in on election day, I think you're, you're seeing those officials get prepared for just a highly unusual experience this time. Considering all these concerns we have about what local, state, and national officials in this country are doing, seems that Russia should be perhaps the least of our worries. It's what we're doing to ourselves. I think that's that's so true. And I think, you know, my cynical self looks at this and thinks that, you know, Vladimir Putin is patting himself on the back and can't believe his good luck. Uh, and that he says, okay, my work is done here. You guys are handling it for me. You put your finger on it there. This is part of the uh, the Russian ambition is to make people in this country believe that our system is not special that it's just as corrupt as everyone else's, that it's just as flawed as everyone else's. And a healthy dose of, you know, us recognizing our own flaws, sure, that's a good thing. But what they are trying to foment is something that is actively happening now, which is distrust, mistrust, the belief that your political opponent is your enemy, um, and and this kind of heightening of tensions. And, And Vladimir Putin didn't cause that. That has been brewing for a host of reasons for a long time in this country, but it is it is reaching a kind of fever pitch right now. And, and again, you know, when we see protests spilling into violence as they have in some cases, it just greatly worries me that people will lose faith in the political system to solve their problems and will decide that the only way to settle them is by force against each other. This is, I, I just, I don't think that it's unreasonable to think that we're sitting on a knife's edge right now. And that particularly during the tense days and weeks of counting these ballots that you could see, you know, significant violence in the streets. Shane, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's always good to talk to you. That was Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter at The Washington Post. And that's all for today. Thanks to those of you who've reached out to let me know what you'd like me to cover during this very difficult time. Please continue to let us know what's on your mind. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email, drpodcast at wamu.org. Our theme music is composed by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. The show is produced by Rebecca Kaufman, Allison Brody, and Sandra Baker. Thanks for listening, all. Don't forget to wear those masks to keep yourself and those you love and everyone around you safe. I'm Diane Rehm.